0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns of Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Moody is entitled, Unstoppable. Have you ever heard the question, what happens when an immovable object meets an unstoppable force? Well, in the spiritual realm, it seems as if hell's strongholds upon this earth are immovable. However, nothing is stopping God's church. Through Christ, we are unstoppable. Please contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Moody.
1: you to get the glory that is due your name. and For that to happen, Jesus Christ must be high and lifted up. And every knee must bow and every tongue must confess. Lord Jesus, you must be seen clearly. And I pray that you'd remove the scales that cover our earthly eyes. This veil that separates this natural realm from the supernatural one, when we see, when we see through it today, this morning. Lord, may we behold that you are good. May we behold your majesty and your beauty. May it change us. May it not just be information for our minds, may it be life altering substance for our souls. Come and dwell within us, Lord. In reality, not in theory, we must have the presence of God. Otherwise, we cannot live out the Christian life. The standards, the commands, the level of righteousness and excellence that we are responsible to bear in bearing the name of Jesus Christ is too much for us. So we need the God who is everything excellent, good, and perfect to enter in and do the work in and through us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come this morning and move upon your saints. May we not be the same when you are done working with us today. Take us forward. It's in the precious name of our great King that we pray, amen. Well, God seems to be doing this over and over again where I get messages that are bigger than me, you know, every technical, technically every message that a, preachers should be giving should be a lot bigger than their souls can handle and a lot bigger than they can even fathom because we're dealing with a God who is bigger than any of us can fathom but at the same time there's usually sort of a sense of understanding because you've spent time basking in it for a while but in this particular message there's this forward push that God is doing within me and he is moving me in the direction of what this message is and it's it's dangerous, it's exciting, it's thrilling, but it's epic in its size. Now, I'm very attracted to epic things. Anything epic in the Bible, I like it. It's like a moth to a flame. I just like flutter around it and I hang out there. If there's any language that is epic in the Bible, I find myself gravitating to it. Uh, The the word majesty in and of itself, majestic. I flutter around that word. Anytime I see it, there it is, and I flutter. Uh, It's... And so... This is a message that is built with an epic tone and it is just so much bigger than I have a clue how to pass along to you. So we'll just give it our best shot uh, this morning. Uh, But it's it's called Unstoppable. You know, I gave a message over this past summer called Immovable. Sounds sort of similar, doesn't it? But Immovable and Unstoppable are actually two different things. They're both a part of the kingdom of heaven. They're both attributes of the church of Jesus Christ. But one, immovability, has the mental picture of fixing our feet, our spiritual feet, on the truth of Jesus Christ, on the rock. And if he says it, we believe it. Now what if all the natural realm around us defies the reality of what's in the Bible? What if every scientist gathers together and says, but we have evidence to say that what is in the Bible is not true. Immovability does not shudder at such a thing. It stands firm and it says, my God is true. And let every man be a liar. That's immovability. And when you start fixing your spiritual feet to rock, the enemy will come in like a flood. I gave that message uh, over the summer. That afternoon, we had what would be the equivalent of a Colorado monsoon, and my basement flooded. Dead serious, I was talking about a man building his house upon the rock, and when the winds and the rains come and beat against your house, you will not be moved. So that night, the winds and the rains beat against my house, and my basement flooded. So I got somewhat upset about that, and uh, so I brought up the message again. And it wasn't called immovable, I don't remember what it was, but I stuck a whole subsection in one of my messages. I said, I'm not backing down. Hear me, enemy? I'm going to speak it, and I'm going to speak it straight. That afternoon, we had another Colorado monsoon, and my basement flooded. I'm dead serious. I did it a third time. Anyone who's been in Ellerslie knows and has witnessed this. I have stood on this position of immovability, and whatever it's doing in hell, it's sending off an alarm. Hey. We're immovable, and we will not be shaken. Read Psalm 46 and read Psalm 112. David said, we will not be moved. We will not fear evil tidings. We will not be shaken. Why? Because our God is not going anywhere. He's not changing his mind. He's not evolving from generation to generation. That's something to stand on. We have something rock-like beneath us. That's not what this message is about. But I figured I'd throw it out there again. <laughs> check your, you know, if any of you have a little weather thing on your iPhone, check and see if, if water is expected today. Any moisture? Uh, this message is not immovable. It's unstoppable. It's, here's the mental picture for this one. Rock. Fixed. We are immovable. And then stick wheels underneath that rock and send it into the world. That is the church of Jesus Christ. We don't just hang out in a defensive posture. We are, strange as this is going to sound, militaristically offensive on this earth. There is a job to be done. We do not just pop out of the spiritual womb. We're in hostile territory. We're like, oh no, batten down the hatches. Get into the storm cellar. We need to find protection. That's how most Christians function. Because it is a hostile, mean old world out there. And they are hunting Christians. Maybe not in America yet, but all over this world is a very dangerous thing to be a Christian. And so doesn't it make a lot of sense? Let's, let's get our immovable you know, posture, and then let's go into the cellar with it. We don't need to go out and broadcast anything and make this harder on ourselves than we need to. God sticks us on wheels. He sends his beacon of hope full of light into the darkest corners of the earth. And here's the key. I don't know if you're recognizing the significance of this word. And we are unstoppable. We don't just go off to our death. We go off to victory. We may die in gaining the victory. Remember Jesus? But he was unstoppable. What he did could not be quelled, could not be quenched, could not be put down. They tried to lay hands on him. He walked right through the crowds. He was not taken. He gave himself. Why? Because it was the fullness of time and God had an agenda. And when they thought they were killing him, he said, I've got you in the palm of my hand. I have you right where I want you, all the host of hell. And he defeated them with nails in his hands and his feet. How does he do it? That's the same thing he does with the church of Jesus Christ. We will not be put down. We will win. Why? Because it is the God of the universe that indwells us, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We go off to victory, and we will not back down. I don't care if they take our life, we win. We are unstoppable. So I want you to start getting familiar with this word. I don't know what kind of alarm is going off in hell as I bring this up. But I tell you what. Hell doesn't want you to know what's in this message. The paradox of virtue. We're going to get some raw materials out so Eric can settle down a little here. First, let's describe the courteous Christian. This is the Christian you're used to. Now, you might not have ever seen one like this, but this is the Christian that we've been taught to be. It's all true. There's nothing wrong with this list. However, I'm going to give you another dimension of another sort of Christian, and then we're going to work on blending the two together. The courteous Christian. It says, do not resist evil. Be anxious for nothing. Be merciful and peace-loving. Be gentle, edifying, and life-giving. Love as Christ loved. You don't look at that list and go, oh, no, throw out number three. Well, it's obvious in Scripture that this is the deportment of Jesus Christ. And when he comes and lives within you, he is what we could term the courteous Christian. He has an eye for the needs of others. He will lay down his life to give life to those around him. Okay, but this this message isn't just about the courteous Christian. We'll spend plenty of time on the courteous Christian. We have the contending Christian. This is the one element that we oftentimes are missing today in the Church of Jesus Christ. however it is equally true and it is not to create a paradox because I called the start of the saying the paradox of virtue virtue there is a beauty and a majesty a way that a life is supposed to shine forth the work of God within them and it, it has a weight to it it is beautiful it is It is is a glimmer and a shimmer of heaven upon it. But there's a paradox, because most of us are used to this. When someone comes up and strikes you on one cheek, well, of course, what do you do? You turn to them the other. You know, if someone comes and plunders all the goods out of your house, you're supposed to rejoice. If they beat you up because you love Jesus, what do you do? You don't hit them back. You say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm worthy to suffer alongside of you and for your namesake. Be anxious for nothing. You're not supposed to be all fretting and fearful and, uh, and anxious over all the little trivialities in your life. Take no care, no thought for these things. Your God is in control. Be merciful and peace-loving. Be gentle, edifying, life-giving. When someone opposes you, you respond to them in a certain way, and it's a Christ-like way. It's not the way the world does with all the bluster and the self-defensiveness. We do it different. We're supposed to love as Christ loved. That's the mark and the badge of a Christian. You will know my disciples by that love. This is a good list. But the contending Christian, almost everything on this list is the same terminology, but it's used completely opposite. For instance, look at the first thing on the list. Resist the devil. Okay, let's go back to the courteous Christian. Do not resist evil. Just put a D in front of evil, and what do you get? Devil. Resist the devil. What? Okay, wait a minute here. Both are commands in Scripture. How in the world can they both be true? We have a tension here, don't we? How in the world can you not resist when certain things happen and then resist when other things happen? Who's right and when are you wrong? I mean, What what is this? Look at the second one. Be anxious for the things of the Lord. Let's go back. Be anxious for nothing. Wait a minute. Nothing means nothing. You can't be anxious for nothing, and then you're supposed to be anxious and take care and have a burden for the things of God and his glory. Wait a minute. How does this work? You know that Jesus would be everything that we describe as anxious, the weight of heaven, the burden of God upon his soul in Gethsemane. Could you imagine coming up to Jesus in Gethsemane and saying, hey, be anxious for nothing? He was carrying the weight of the world upon his soul. He was sweating great drops of blood. It wasn't an anxiety for self, though. It was the burden of God upon his soul. And they're two very distinct things. Be belligerent and pugnacious against the forces of hell. Oh, that was last week's sermon. We're actually supposed to be outrageously belligerent towards hell's agenda on earth. No! You are not coming here. Wait a minute. What was the other list? Be merciful and peace-loving. Oh, come on in. Make yourself comfortable on my couch. Oh, you're thirsty. Let me get you something to drink. When hell comes a-knocking, you do not invite them in and give them your clothes off your back. You don't give them a cup of cool water. You need to know who to give the cup of cool water to and who to slam the door on. It's a very important dimension to the Christian life. Tread down all enemy power and rip down their strongholds. Wait a minute. What happened to be gentle, edifying, and life giving? Let's read this one again because I love this. Tread down. I love the word tread. I almost did an entire message just on tread for you because there are all sorts of things you're supposed to tread on in Scripture. It's a fun study. You should look at it, especially if you get interested in those types of things. Like, oh, I'd like to know what I should tread on. Oh, there's all sorts of good things we get to tread on. My favorite one all the power of the enemy. Ah, that's good. Oops. Look at this bottom one. Hate that which Christ hated. Let's go back. Love as Christ loved. Now that's all sweet. That's courtesy. We want more of that. That's the badge of Christianity. So is this. Hate that which Christ hated. There are things in this earth that Christ hates. We need to come into alignment with Christ's heart. And when we do, we start loving what he loves, and we hate what he hates. Both of these lists mark a Christian. You're not supposed to be a half-baked one. You're supposed to be the full picture. There is a time to be courteous, and there's a time to contend. What's what? Okay, the model shepherd. This is going to be my illustration for you. Let's see is there, let's see if there's another line with this. He must know how to comfort and protect the sheep. The model shepherd. Imagine I'm a shepherd. I have some sheep. Now, my job as a shepherd is to show a great courtesy towards my sheep. You know that first list, the the nice guy, Christian? Well, I'm supposed to give that nice guy, Christian, to my sheep. So in other words, my sheep have a little, you know, uh, thorn in their what a hoof is that what sheeps have sounds funny suddenly I don't know how a sheep is built but uh, if they have a little thorn in their hoof since no one's correcting me then it's my job as a shepherd to gently remove it to care for them if one of them's having a rough day I pick them up and I hold them and I comfort them yeah I'm a good guy to my sheep I take care of my sheep my sheep receive my softness At the same time, if all I am is a nice, big, soft shepherd, you know, that hugs sheep and takes care of everything, and I'm just nice to everyone, suddenly a wolf comes into town and he's salivating over my sheep. And I'm like, oh, hi, wolf. How are you doing today? You want to come in for a meal? Why don't you come on in, sit down, have dinner with us? He's like, I'd love to. And a little, you know, saliva's dripping down. You need to know when to close the sheep pen and when to show hostility. You see, I'm supposed to be gentle and caring and loving and kind and all those wonderful things. I'm supposed to be loving towards my sheep. And I'm supposed to show a hatred of belligerence and a feisty hostility towards the powers of darkness. That's the distinction. You need to know who you're assigned to protect. Who you're assigned to love. Who you're assigned to give your life away for. And who you're assigned to defy and to fight off with every ounce of blood in your body. So the shepherd principle is the way we're looking at it. A shepherd has a very clear distinction to that territory. Now sheep, there are lost sheep and there are found sheep in scripture. And even the lost sheep the shepherd will lay down his life for And same for you. There are lost sheep out there. And you are willing to give up your life for them. You're gentle with them. You're peace-loving with them. They might defy your God at a certain level in their soul. But you see behind that and you say, God desires that person to be saved. And you will relinquish comforts, health. You will give up your life to see them awaken to the gospel. You will be hospitable to them. Come in amongst the sheep. But it's another sheep It's by nature, even though they're hostile to the shepherd, maybe, they still are a limping sheep marked by sin, and they need your love. However, anything that is hostile to sheep in general, anything that is out to destroy the sheep pen of Jesus Christ, you are responsible. At the family level, if something's trying to attack your marriage, if something's trying to attack your your kids something's trying to attack the Church of Jesus Christ, if something's trying to attack the Word of God and diminish it in our generation, if something's trying to attack unborn babies in this world, if someone's trying to hurt orphans out there, if someone's trying to hinder widows, we have a job to do, and we show resistance there. We say, no, these are the sheep of God, and a shepherd needs to know when to comfort and when to protect. There is a job to do both, and that shepherd needs to be courteous and a contender. He shows love, this is speaking of the shepherd, always towards sheep, both lost ones and found ones. He shows warlike pugnacity. Now, since I introduced the word pugnacity last week, some of you weren't here, so you're like, what's that? Uh, It's just a great word. You need to look it up in the dictionary. He shows warlike pugnacity always towards the spiritual lions, bears, and wolves intent on destroying his sheepfold. Okay, now I'm going to introduce you to something. We'll call it the sheep brigade. Can you think of a stronger military force than a whole bunch of sheep? It's like this resounding war cry. All the sheep stick their hooves up in the air and they're like... And all the powers of earth and hell are like, no! All the the wolves, bears, and lions are scampering into the woods because the sheep brigade is on the move. It sounds preposterous, doesn't it? That is God's chosen vehicle for bringing glory to his name. He gathers a whole bunch of ridiculous sheep together. And he makes and he marshals for himself an unstoppable military force. So my subtitle, The Unstoppable Military Force of Dumb, Wooly Creatures. There's a humor in it, and we're supposed to laugh at this. God did this purposely. Because what he's doing with this unstoppable military force of dumb, wooly creatures is he's defying and mocking all the powers of earth and hell. With one breath! He could blow them over. But he chooses to mock them through our obedience and faith. And when we marshal together in obedience to our king, he literally holds them in contempt. And I've used this illustration before, but can you think of anything more insulting to a wolf than to be taken down by a sheep? How embarrassing is it? You know, the wolf is trying to show off for his other wolf pals. And he comes in and he's trying to come up against the sheep. And the sheep looks up at him and goes you know who my shepherd is? He goes, I have authority over you. And the wolf's like, who is your shepherd? Jesus Christ. The wolf's like, oh no. And then that sheep, you know, sort of gets a little running start, bumps into him. And the wolf goes tumbling down. And the wolf is like paralyzed down. And the sheep comes up, sticks its, its jaws, its jowls right over the next throat and says, you can't do anything. You stop your work. You get out of town. And that wolf's like, oh, okay. And all the pals in the back are like, oh, he got beat by a sheep. That's the point. We aren't powerful in and of ourselves. We have no authority in and of ourselves. A sheep can't defeat a wolf. But now he can. Same old sheep, we're still helpless. If we try and do it in our own strength, we lose. But if we tap into the strength and the authority of that almighty shepherd, those wolves go down. Okay, so here's our short list of the sheep brigade, okay? So what I have is I have, oh, about five different subcategories. And with each of these subcategories, it's, it's the huge description of this almighty military force of sheep. This is what the Bible says about this unstoppable force. Okay, so when I use the word immovable, it's impressive. But we start talking about unstoppable, and then we start throw in sheep. It's, it's absolutely lunacy. Okay, for instance, the Israelites go across the Jordan River into the land of promise, and there's a hostile uh, fortress, stronghold known as Jericho. And God says, March. He doesn't care what we look like. You ever notice that? He is holding in contempt the powers of the enemy. And when those walls of Jericho fall, who gets the credit? The men that marched? The sheep brigade? Everyone knows it couldn't have been the sheep brigade. It's the God in the sheep brigade. It's the God that knocks down the walls. It's the God that is empowered through the obedience and the faith of his men and women. So our first description. This sheep brigade is a super conquering sheep brigade. Have you ever heard the word superhero? That would be the concept of superheroic. In other words, there's heroic, and then there's superheroic. And those guys wear capes and S's. Well... Introducing the super-conquering Sheep Brigade. Big S on the chest of the Church of Jesus Christ. We just don't realize it's there. Jesus has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Everything that is needed. It says he ever lives to make intercession for us, to stand to be strong for us. It says he will save us to the uttermost. Everything that we need along the way. To the uttermost degree, he will save us. He will deliver us. He will bring us through this battle. You have God fighting for you. S, super conquering. So they are more than conquerors in Romans 8, 37. Great scripture, by the way. Bequeath, this sheep of great is bequeathed with all power and all authority. They are seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly position of power and authority, as it says in Ephesians 2. They are given power over all the power of the enemy, as it says in Luke 10, to tread upon their high places, as it says in Deuteronomy 33. This sheep brigade is immovable and invincible. They are able to repel all the fiery darts of the enemy, able to tread on lions, adders, serpents, scorpions, and dragons, able to drink poison and be unharmed, A thousand shall fall at their side and ten thousand at their right hand, but it shall not come near them. There shall not a hair of their head perish. Jesus gives unto them eternal life, and they shall never, neither shall any man pluck them out. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of his hand. I don't know that most of us look at these scriptures as anything but good poetry in the Bible. You know that God is making it very clear that he's building an unstoppable military force. Are you willing to be a part of it? I don't care how powerful, how big the regime of Islam is today. It will fall before the unstoppable military force of the church of Jesus Christ when the church of Jesus Christ is as it ought to be. I don't care how strong some of the lobbies, the political lobbies are in this country. They are not strong enough to stand against the unstoppable sheep brigade known as the Church of Jesus Christ when we rise up and believe once again. The church is suffering from unbelief today because the Bible says it clearly. All of us are like, I've never seen that. I'm not going to be the one to stick my chest out because I'm not seeing the S there. Jesus has the S on his chest. You get inside of him. You are clothed in Jesus Christ. You get into the almighty headquarters of God, known as the Holy of Holies. And there is a treasure chest, an armory. He opens it up and he says, Everything you will need, dress yourself in it. You have armor, you have a shield, you have a helmet, you have a sword, you have things to you, boots of iron and brass to stick on. You have everything you need to trample upon all the powers of earth and hell. Take it, live it. Stick it down the enemy's throat. The gates of hell shall not prevail. They will not be able to withstand the onslaught. Do you believe it? Because until you rise up and believe it, nothing's going to change. They are fearless. I really like that word. I need to have a message that's just called fearless. Immovable, unstoppable, Fearless. I like the word invincible, too. You notice I stuck that one in as well. Fearless. Why are they fearless? The Lord is their light and their salvation. So whom shall they fear? The Lord is the strength of their life. So of whom shall they be afraid? Though a host should encamp against them, their hearts shall not fear. Though war should rise against them, they remain confident in their God. Because God will never leave them or forsake them. And he ever lives to make intercession for them. God is their refuge and strength, the very present help in their trouble. Therefore they will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against them shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against them in judgment, God shall condemn. This is good stuff. We've all heard these scriptures. That's what's funny. We've grown up hearing them. We don't believe them. Because when you believe them, you begin to live as if it's true. That's the evidence of belief. The Israelites didn't believe their God that he could conquer the 31 hostile empires in the promised land. Guess what? They didn't move forward. When you believe that God is ready to take down those enemy empires and those strongholds, you take a step into the Jordan River and it parts. Just make sure... You have the Ark of Covenant with you. The presence of the Almighty God. Oh, Here's a good word for us. This sheep brigade is also unstoppable. The Lord is with them as a mighty, terrible one. The gates of hell shall not prevail against them. Whatsoever they shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever they shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. Since God is for them, who can be against them? If God is for the church, who can stand against it? That is the definition of unstoppability. Because the enemy cannot stop our forward march. Let's prove it. Let's prove it in this generation. Because I can give a message like this. All the people that are listening in, you know, that don't have a high view of Christianity in the first place, they click on this online. They're like, what an idiot. The only way to shut that crazy trap out there is to live it, is to demonstrate the power of Jesus Christ in and through the believing saints. That is the way that all the earth will know that he is God. That all Israel will know that he is God. Their mouths will be shut. And if anything does come out, they'll say, The Lord, he is the God. We need fire to come down from heaven and consume the altar afresh in this generation. We need it, and we need it desperately. Because the church is anemic and we're weak and we're the butt of all jokes out there. We have the word of God. And the word of God has given us our marching orders. We know what to do. It's time we start doing it. The juggernaut. It's another word I really like. Uh, It's a dangerous word to work with because I, I was wanting to name the entire message, the juggernaut. But since it's a word... Wait till you hear the original etymology of the word and where it comes from. It comes from uh, the Hindus uh, and their god uh, Vishnu. Uh, they would stick him on a cart, this big god Vishnu, uh, some type of idol statue, and they'd take him to the streets of, I guess, India, and all the if anyone didn't bow down, this, the wheels of this cart would literally be mowed over them and they would be trampled to death. Anyone who didn't bow to the juggernaut was crushed beneath its wheels. I know that sounds absolutely horrible because you're saying, Eric, are you actually saying that that's what we do as Christians? Prepare yourself for my answer. Not of sheep. We don't trample sheep underneath the wheels. We demonstrate the authority of the cross of Jesus Christ and we trample under those wheels every power of the supernatural forces of hell that are going to erect themselves and marshal themselves together to conspire to destroy the work of Jesus Christ in this world. And if they will not bend to the purposes of Jesus Christ, they go under the wheels of the juggernaut. You know what the juggernaut meant? It meant the Lord of the world. It was actually known to remove the sin of those who would behold it. Isn't that incredible? The Hindus have it. What kind of thing is this? Do we have a word like juggernaut in our language that we can use to show the unstoppable force that the church of Jesus Christ is? We, uh, the ironic twist to this whole thing is Christians are the most gentle of all creatures on earth, just like little sheep. We're the most gentle of all creatures to our fellow men. And we are the most belligerent and warlike towards the powers of hell. Isn't that an incredible, seeming paradox of virtue? And that's the reality of what takes place inside of us as Christians. We are warlike towards hell. We hate evil. And we love people around us to the point where they can spit upon us, they can nail us to crosses, we'll forgive them. What is this? It's the kingdom of heaven come to earth in and through the bride of Christ. So here's my description of the juggernaut. It's an organized battalion of Christian soldiers separated for a definite season unto tactical, travailing prayer and thusly assembled into a spiritual force through which the majesty of Christ's glory literally overpowers, swallows up, and tramples underfoot the powers of earth and hell that stand in defiance to God's almighty rule over the nations and the peoples of this earth. It's a kingdom-built weapon of war shaped by the Spirit of God to ruthlessly oppose the schemes of the devil and to see the glory of God made manifest in the earthly realm and the lamb that was slain received the reward of his suffering. God's juggernaut is unstoppable. It wields the full authority of the blood of Jesus Christ and is able through travailing prayer to see all opposition bend their knee in submission to the kingly authority of the Lord of heaven and earth. The word God selected in order to describe this unstoppable, invincible, more-than-conquering, fearless, God-fashioned company of heroes is the church. God's church is the juggernaut. But God's church doesn't look like one today, which is why this sounds so ridiculous. It's like Eric is dreaming out there. He's just you know, taking a whole bunch of scriptures and putting them together and trying to make it sound epic. Because he's just attracted to that sort of thing. The reason I'm attracted to that sort of thing is because God is attracted to that sort of thing and he's stirring within me. There's a growl in God's voice to me. Eric, rise up. Be a man. Stand for truth. Be willing to die for truth. We need someone in this day and age who's willing to put it all on the line. This, when it says... It is a band of soldiers. These are military men and women. There is need for men and women, soldiers of the cross. But how does this company, how does this juggernaut, how does this church work? The men and women in this church gather together and they link arms and they bend their knee and they commit in covenant to pray. And they pray and they keep praying. And what is it that they do the next day? They pray, and they pray, and they pray. And when men and women covenant together, and they form that, that force, that praying force, the church of Jesus Christ becomes a juggernaut, which means, by the way, unstoppable. That's what the word juggernaut means. Unstoppable force. That is what the church of Jesus Christ in its most basic definition is. It reveals to the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God. And it shows and it declares on planet earth the authority of Jesus Christ. Is our God a wimp? Because the church is demonstrating a wimpiness today. Our God is a super conquering God. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. That may sound mean. But it's the authority of our God made manifest on this earth. And right now, we start in the individual body. And we say, Eric, you bend your knee and you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First, Eric must be conquered. And when Eric is conquered, the kingdom of heaven is brought to earth and established. And Jesus takes his rightful throne within this life. And then it happens in you. And then we gather together. We form the church of jesus christ we're all conquered individuals who have bent their knee and proclaimed to confess that he is lord to whose glory the father's glory and as we band together there's still an earth that needs to come under that reality and that purchase of the cross this all belongs to jesus everyone out there belongs to him And we're after the purchase of Jesus Christ. Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? And so we, instead of just going out and trying to convince the nations, please, turn to Jesus. They can't hear it unless someone starts praying. The human spirit, the location which God first begins to move within a deadened soul, needs to be awakened. And it is awakened first and foremost through the power of praying men and women. How how does God form a battalion of praying men and women? He does it. So the process is God awakens and stirs his people, shows them their inadequacy, shows them their impotence and their weakness. They can't change the earth. And so we look at scripture. We say, God, what am I supposed to do? He says, you need something. Terry in Jerusalem. And the promise of the Father will be given you. The Spirit of God will come. And He will do the work. So we say, I can't do it, but I want it to be done. And He says, that's what I need. You're the vehicle I can use. And then we wait before God. And we travail for everything that is needed to carry forth the task. It starts with prayer. Men and women united together in prayer. And then comes power. And God begins to exhibit Himself on planet Earth. That is how every revival on planet Earth, has taken place. That is the sequence of events. But it starts with the formation of the juggernaut beneath the stage. Last week's message, under the stage, the men and women who are willing to be called out, that they're willing to give up their platform, they're willing to give up their, uh, the, the look, the applause of others around them, and they're willing to consecrate their life unto prayer. Even if it's for a season, to say, God, you must do this on Earth. And there's only one way it's going to get done, and that's if the church goes into the prayer closet. And the church begins to be bent to the will of God in prayer. God, do it! What if it doesn't happen that day? Then you keep a hold of that truth and that promise, and you say, God, I will not let go until it happens in this generation. What happens if we all band together with a similar resolve? The juggernaut is formed. And there is no power in earth and hell that will stop it. But first, we need to respond and begin praying. It's already happening here at Ellerslie, so it's not like I'm saying something new and you're like, oh, prayer? This is what's happening here. However, to keep the pressure upon our souls and to recognize what it does, we're not praying for its spiritual calisthenic because it's just therapeutic for our soul. Oh, I just feel so much better now that I prayed. This is for the glory of our King, because the way that he will accomplish in this earth what he needs to accomplish is going to be done in and through praying men and women. Because when men and women start praying, preachers rise up, anointed with unction. Teachers rise up with an ability to articulate the truth of scripture in a way that people understand in this generation. Evangelists are risen up. Men and women to give themselves for the causes of the weak, the unborn, the orphan, the widow, the lost, the imprisoned are driven out. Of the woodwork. And suddenly they're just burdened and they can't do anything but go. They have to go. And everyone around is going, What's wrong with you? I don't know. But God's commissioning me to go. How does that happen? Because men and women get under the stage to pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest that He would raise up laborers. Pray! That's what's gonna do it. And here's the ironic thing you start praying, God. There's a harvest out there. We need laborers. Do you think he's going to go, thank you. Okay, here's a laborer. He's going to say, uh, first we start with you. Me? I was just praying because Eric gave a sermon on it. <laughs> Didn't think you were actually going to start with me. It's the whole purpose of it. God bends us onto the stage. He bends us to the prayer closet so that he can have full access to us. It doesn't mean he's going to send you overseas. He might. However, you're now available to him. You've become a laborer in the great harvest work. I don't know what generation we live in in the whole scheme of things. You know, when all time is you know, finished in this, uh, in this dispensation that we're in, if we're going to look back and say, that was the time to be alive. And somehow God chose me for that generation of all generations. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I want to live as if it is. You know, if we end up finding out that we were the 10th ranked generation in all of world history, you know, it's like God lines them up and he says, You know, this one, I did the 10th most important work on earth in that generation. Now that's not shabby. 10? Not bad. But what if God's setting us up to be the most significant generation in history? I know you could say, Well, what about the cross? There's something that happens when Christ returns, his second coming, his return. When his feet land on Mount Olivet and he claims the earthly territory that is under his feet. I mean, that's some good stuff. I don't know if it ranks above the cross work because it's the result of the cross work. However, I don't know if we're in that generation, but let's live as if we are. Let's live as if the time is of the essence. Let's live with a pressure upon our souls to say, if, if I don't rise up, maybe no one will. God, here I am, send me. He's looking through this generation. Will he stop on us? Hey, you, Eric, I'm in. I'm in. Are you in? Because if all of us were in, this world gets turned upside down. I don't know if a juggernaut can be formed with one praying man. I don't even want to experiment with that. I want the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. That's on God's heart. It's not just one in one. The reason he would even raise up one is to get a multitude. He's after his people. And you're not the only one that's being stirred, by the way. You might feel like it. You go back home to your daily life. You're like, I'm the only one that sees this. Remember Elijah? He's like, I'm the only one left. There's 7,000 that haven't bent their knee to Baal. God is stirring in his body. And we're not the only church. He's stirring. Genesis 41. Genesis 41. And he made him to ride. Speaking of Joseph, the, the pharaoh of Egypt made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him rule over all the land of Egypt. I just think it's a great picture of Jesus Christ, given the second chariot unto the Father. And he's given all authority over Egypt. Well, that's, that's about as good of a statement of the gospel as you could get. So I decided to throw it in there. Because literally, pharaoh commands that as the chariot of Joseph is riding through the land of Egypt, bow the knee. If someone doesn't bow, what happens? That's the equivalent of the juggernaut. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. No exception. All power. He is over all things. We exert that authority. That's a pretty big authority, by the way. Romans 14. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That isn't even the Philippians 2 passage. That's a nice bonus one from Romans 14. Here's the Philippians 2 one that we all have grown to love. We just usually look at it as poetry for the end of all things. As opposed to realizing this is the person of Jesus Christ, and this is what he's doing in you. He has been exalted above every other power. He sits seated at the right hand of the Father. The only reason you're here, awakened to any of this, is because God has exerted this very stuff within your soul. And that is what we are mandated to bring into this earth. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This isn't an eschatological teaching. However, I want you to see something. I just want to read a passage out of Revelation that includes these, these guys, we don't know who they are. In fact, a lot of speculation floats around in Christianity. Are they actual men or are they people groups? Is it the, the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers? Is it uh, those that are in covenant with Jesus and uh, you know, under the Jews and the Gentiles? Is it two men? Is it Moses and Elijah? You know They have qualities that are similar. Well, I am not about to try and teach on that in the middle of this message. So that's not what I'm giving you. You're like, oh no, he's so close to it. I just want you to listen to the juggernaut-ish realities of these two men. And I want you to see a picture of the kingdom of heaven in this. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a 1,203 score days, clothed in sackcloth, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Let me read that again. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. Hmm. That's a little odd. And devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. You don't mess with the juggernaut. You can't mess with the juggernaut. It is dangerous stuff messing with God's sheep. Remember, he's a good shepherd. He's not just a shepherd, he's a good shepherd. And if he's a good shepherd, he's very similar to David. And when that lion tried to grab a hold of one of David's sheep, He bolted after him and cracked open his jaw. Well, who are you messing with when you mess with the sheep of God? The sheep brigade is untouchable. The sheep brigade is immovable. The sheep brigade is invincible. And the sheep brigade is unstoppable. Why? Because the sheep brigade is shepherded by the good shepherd. I love it. These have power, speaking of the two witnesses, to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Look at that line. I should have had it highlighted. As often as they will. You know what? I'm feeling like I'd like to turn some water to blood today. As often as they will. Now these two witnesses, according to the rest of Scripture, if we're going to match them up, would have to be in perfect concordance with the nature of God. Just like Jesus. He did what God was doing. He didn't just come up with his own plan. But if God is stirring within them, that, that ocean there turns to blood. Whew, that's some power. And to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified, so Jerusalem. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and the great and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake. And the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain men of seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. First of all, there's a lot of similarity to the death of Jesus Christ in that story. Even the length of time three and a half days. And they all rejoice. This guy had put, made them miserable. You know that Jesus made Israel miserable? The guy was only love. I mean, he's healing people. Why in the world is there a problem? These guys are no different. All they're doing is giving the message of love to the earth. It just happens to be repent. Hey, it's still love. It's the only hope you have. But it's torment to everyone who wants to live in self, selfishness. They want life on their terms. And these two witnesses come and proclaim that they are not their own. They've been bought. That they belong to the king of the universe and his name is Jesus Christ. And as a result, it's called tormenting. They're tormented by these men. These men are God's vessels. And unfortunately, the way the world looks at it, we as the church, very similar to this, we are looked at as the problem. When in actuality, we're doing the behest of heaven. Jesus Christ has an agenda, and it's our job to carry it out. And we carry it out when we're working with men and women on this earth in absolute love, always in love, always in mercy and grace. We are marked by Jesus's deportment. However, we are contenders for the truth, and we will not back down. God's ultimate war machine. The praying church. It's that simple. God's ultimate war machine. You know how we look at this earth and we're like, God, do something! He's already defined how he will do something. And it's done through the praying church. So if the church isn't praying, and we want God to supersede and come up with a new way of dealing with it, because that's hard work for us. God, could you just oust these politicians that seem to be doing this horrible stuff? Could you just oust these guys? And he says, will you get down on your knee and obey? (laughs) I'm calling my church to pray. That's how it's done. God's already come up with the model for how this earth will be taken. The spirit and the bride say, come. We are the force that brings forth Jesus. We bring Jesus into people's souls through our praying. We bring Jesus to mount all of that and his feet upon it through our praying. The Spirit says it. We join in harmony with the Spirit of God as he echoes forth into the heavenlies. Come, Lord Jesus. Take what is rightfully yours for the glory of the Father. Put everyone beneath your knee. Everyone comes beneath the foot of Jesus Christ, starting with us, the church. That's our position. We are bent to his rulership. But he is an amazingly benign and gentle dictator. He is. He's an absolute ruler. But boy, is he good. He is so gentle and merciful to his sheep. It's the ultimate place to be enfolded in his grace. I'm going to introduce you to a war machine. It's not the typical war machine, but this is excerpted out of a book called Reese Howell's Intercessor. And this section that I'm working through is about 40 pages in length. I'm not putting 40 pages up. Don't worry. It was painful for me to try and choose what to put up. I just want you guys all to read the book. It is so powerful what God will do when his men and women consecrate themselves unto prayer. This is during World War II, and God built for himself a prayer college of men and women, around 100 of them, that were set apart to literally take on Hitler. And Hitler was befuddled and stopped by these praying men and women. I mean, the testimony throughout this is so extraordinary. What they knew in prayer weeks, sometimes it was days, but weeks before it even happened in the natural. And they stood on it and they would not bend. And then it was revealed in the natural. There's no, it's, it's documented. The whole book is a documentation of it. It's extraordinary. January 1st, 1935. So about five years. Uh, before the war really began to encroach uh, upon England. In a new sense, because they're in England, by the way. In a new sense, this is... I'm going to read two different things. I'm going to read from a journal that was taken uh, at the prayer college, and I'm going to read from the biography itself. This is from the biography, written by Norman Grubb. In a new sense, the world began to be their parish. They began to be open for God to lay any prayer on them which would further the reaching of every creature with the gospel. They became responsible to intercede for countries and nations, as well as for individual missionaries and societies. The college truly became a house of prayer for all nations. Excerpted from Daily Diary at college meetings. March 21st, 1936. Things are very black on continent. We pray on until 11 a.m. and come back at 2.36 and 9 p.m. We ask the Lord to deal with Germany. March 23rd, 1936, very grave on continent and in London. Meetings at 9, 11, and 6, and 9 p.m. We plead with God to deal with Hitler and the German nation and to bring them to account. March 24th, 1936, situation regarding European crisis very black. All the countries are disagreeing with each other. Burden is coming on very heavy. Meetings at 9 a.m., 6, and 9 p.m. It continued like that for another five days. Then on March 29th, 1936, Mr. Howells came into the meeting and said, Prayer has failed. We are on slippery ground. Only intercession will avail. God is calling for intercessors, men and women who will lay their lives on the altar to fight the devil, as really as they would have to fight the enemy on the western front. It was made clear that a soldier at the front has no say in where he goes and what he does. He cannot take holidays or attend to the claims of home and loved ones as other people can. And the Lord was telling them that if... As really as that, some would become bond slaves to the Holy Spirit for every creature to be reached and would throw their lives into the gap. He would give the victory and avert war. A large number of the staff and students made their surrender. March 29th, 1936, the most wonderful day in the college so far. Big day of surrenders and many take up the challenge of martyrdom. During the four years previous to the outbreak of World War II, as we have already seen, the Lord was changing the burden on Reese House from local concerns, centering on the development of the college, to national and international affairs. As he said, the world became our parish, and we were led to be responsible to intercede for countries and nations. We have also seen how the Lord was preparing, in the company at the college, a special instrument of intercession for the coming world crisis." Was there anywhere else in the whole of Britain or America or elsewhere among God's people another such company, maybe a hundred strong, who were on their knees by, day by day holding fast the victory by faith while soldiers across the water were retreating mile by mile, whole country surrendering, and the enemy within sight of their goal? If I could go into details in this, these men and women in the prayer college stood and refused to back down in their position, yet everything was going horribly in the war. All the men were retreating. Everything was falling apart. And this prayer band of juggernauts literally stood their ground and would not back down. It's one of the most incredible testimonies I've ever read in my life. From this time on, through all the years of the war, the whole college was in prayer every evening from 7 o'clock to midnight, with only a brief interval for supper. They never missed a day. This was in addition to an hour's prayer meeting every morning and very often at midday. There were many special periods when every day was given wholly to prayer and fasting. May 18th, 1940. I want to fight this enemy again this weekend as if it were the end of civilization. You don't leave anything to chance in this. Don't allow those young men at the front to do more than you do here. May 21st, 1940. Yesterday was the darkest day in the history of this country, especially after the prime minister's speech. Everyone in town is expecting the enemy to invade this country. We have told the Lord our lives for victory. The French premier says tonight it is only a miracle that will save us. The test is whether the Bible is true. I am willing to risk my life to prove it. And I want to tell you tonight that it is quite true. See that your believing is right. And if it is, you don't need to have any fear. May 22nd, 1940. The world is in a panic today. And certainly we would be too. Unless we were quite sure the Lord had spoken to us. The destiny of England will be at stake today and tomorrow. From the night of May 22nd, Mr. Howells no longer came to meetings. Other members of the staff took them. He went away alone with God to battle through, and as others have testified, the crushing burden of those days broke his body. He literally laid down his life. May 30th, 1940. Oh, for God to lift us up tonight. We are not to run into any panic thinking the Nazis are going to win. We may have to go through far greater sufferings, yes, but I am not going to doubt the final issue. We state in the plainest terms, the enemy will not invade Christian England. And by the way, there was no possible way in the natural of that being true. And this man stood up before his congregation of praying saints and he says, Mark my words, we stand and the enemy will not prevail. When we look back now after these years, many in Britain still recall the terror of those days, remembering the miracle of Dunkirk acknowledged by various leaders to be an intervention from God, the calm sea allowing the smallest boats to cross, the almost complete evacuation of English troops, and then the the lead Mr. Churchill gave to the nation. How thankful we are that God has, has this company of hidden intercessors whose lives were on the altar day after day as they stood in the gap for the deliverance of Britain." That is hardly a taste of what took place. And I want you to realize that the Nazis never did reach the shores of England. It was impossible. Some of the decisions that Hitler made befuddled Hitler. Hitler always followed what he termed the Voice, capital V. He had a voice that led him, and the voice was never wrong. And when all of his counsel spoke one thing, and the voice said something else, he would go with the voice. And every time he was proven right. But when it came to invading England, it's the one time he went against what the voice said because the voice said it's now. That's even in history. Hitler testified to that. The time was now, and he instead signed the Munich Pact. He didn't even know why he was doing it. Didn't make any sense to him. He's like, this is the first time I've ever conceded anything. And he looked back and he hit himself. Why did I do that? England was vulnerable. Well, how come? this happened. Do we believe in the power of prayer or not? A hundred men and women given to prayer all day long, if necessary, every day to see God's purposes accomplished. Dear God, take back England to make this story seem worth it. The prayer of the hour. This is a scripture I came across this week. And as far as I'm concerned, this is our prayer. This is good. It's from Isaiah 51, and it says this. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. There is a strength that God's arm has demonstrated throughout the ages. But in this generation, we're not seeing it. And so the cry of my heart is awake. Awake, O arm of the Lord! as in the generations of old, as in the ancient days, come forth as a mighty man. Be a mighty, terrible one in our midst. Ananias and Sapphira, if it must be, they fall over dead in our midst because they are defying the Spirit of God. May you cleanse the house of the Lord. May the fear of God come upon the believers again. Please, Lord Jesus, this is the cry of the church. This is the prayer of the hour. The arm of the Lord is what we need. Not a cocky battalion of sheep. We need sheep that are humble before the living God and say, we have nothing, we're sheep. But you have what we need. So awaken, O arm of the Lord. Awaken. And stir within your people afresh. God is building a juggernaut. And he will do it whether we participate or not. But I feel right now that the invitation is open to us to be right in the very heart of what he's doing. So my commission to you is let's say yes. Now I want you to realize Reese Howells died because of this commitment. His body was literally broken because of his willingness to stand in the gap in this situation. You know that today is the anniversary of his death? February 13th. May his death be memorialized in us. May we rise up and say, God, that life was not in vain. You know what Christianity is? It's saying that about Christ's death every day. That death was not in vain. Prove it. Prove it in your church. Lord Jesus, do something with us. We're a mockery to your name right now. Change us, purge us, cleanse us. If there's sin in and amongst this church, dear Lord Jesus, get it out of here. Allow the light to shine in. Whatever. Pain comes with it, may it come. But Lord Jesus, you get your due in and amongst your church. We're just a small little band. We're not that impressive. The church of Jesus Christ never is. I'm not talking about something that is impressive. Even when the juggernaut is on the move, do you know that the enemy mocks it? Because he still sees sheep. But the, the reason this force is unstoppable is because their eyes are on the huge Of King Jesus. When David strolled into the valley of Elah, he was a juggernaut. And what did Goliath see? He saw a little boy. Hey, hey, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Lord will give you into my hand this day. The almighty champion, Goliath. That's what we're standing up against today. And all of Israel is trembling. When is the juggernaut going to come into the camp with bread and cheese to deliver? Give our bread and cheese to all the guys and say, hey, we're ready to do some fighting here. Who's ready to take on that giant over there? If everyone's silent, you keep marching forward. We as the Church of Jesus Christ have a job to do, and it's to wipe the spit off of Christ's face in this generation. Our God is big enough to defend himself in and through his saints when his saints believe. Let's let him be God on earth again. Let's pray. Father, make us willing, make us contenders. Lord, we can't whip this up in our own souls. It must be you that does it in us. So precious King of Kings, do the work that must be done to raise up the laborers for this harvest. Do the work that must be done to form your unstoppable military force. You're gonna do it no matter what. But Lord Jesus... Please don't pass by without taking recruits out of our midst. We want to fight alongside you. We want to be a part of this. And I thank you for giving us the invitation. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would prepare us. I know there's many of us that are afraid, but that you would prepare us for what lies before us for the glory of our great and mighty and majestic King, we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.e-l-l-e-r-s-l-i-e.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.